Hey, it's Pastor Sam. I want to take a minute to thank you so much for taking the time to listen to this sermon. I pray that it blesses you and ultimately it'll point you to Jesus. The audio comes from a sermon series called Gospel Trifecta, looking at the DNA of Sacred City Church, gospel, community, and mission. Or in other words, we're talking about the gospel message, the kind of people it creates, and how the gospel advances in our city and far beyond. We really hope that you would think about joining us on Sunday mornings at 10 a.m. Otherwise, you can find us on Facebook and on YouTube for our live stream each Sunday. For more information, you can visit scmoline.com. So Peter opened his mouth and said, Truly I understand in every nation anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. As for the word that he sent to Israel, preaching good news of peace through Jesus Christ, he is Lord of all. You yourselves know what happened throughout all Judea, beginning from Galilee, after the baptism that John proclaimed, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. He went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. And we are witnesses of all that he did, both in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They put him to death, hanging him on a tree. But God raised him on the third day and made him to appear, not to all the people, but to us who had been chosen by God as witnesses, who ate and drank with him, after he rose from the dead. And he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one appointed by God to be judge of the living and the dead. To him all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. While Peter was still saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word. And the believers from among the circumcised who had come with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles. For they were hearing them speaking in tongues and extolling God. Then Peter declared, Can anyone withhold water for baptizing these people who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Then they asked him to remain for some days. This is the word of the Lord. At my chiropractor's office, there is this chart on the wall um, that, that sort of, it's an infographic that captures the de-evolution of humans. 
And basically, the, the concept of this, this poster is to show that when your spine is misaligned, it leads to a, a deformed people. So, you know, if you're like this, then your spine's misaligned, you start kind of hunching over until you become like a shell of a human being. This misaligned spine leads to misshapen people. A compromised backbone will negatively affect the quality of your life. Now this is an illustration that I feel like I can only get away with in Quad Cities here as the home of chiropractic care, all right? The same is true with the church. A a subluxation of core tenets, that's a free word for you chiropractic students. A subluxation of our core tenets leads to dysfunction, a, a, a misshapen church. And this is way too common. And it explains why many people have a negative view of church. Instead of a, a culture that caters to the flourishing of humanity, that adds value to the city that it's embedded in, a church has been devolved. It becomes a shell of what it's meant to be, a bunch of holier-than-thou pricks and a bunch of like goofy, weirdball, weird, weirdball, that's right, goofball, that's it, goofball, phony baloney, like weirdo Christians that, that have no impact on the city, that the message that they carry, the things that they celebrate just doesn't really resonate And instead of adding value and contributing to human flourishing, the church actually hurts people and hinders people's flourishing. Now the last two weeks, we've been in this short sermon series where we have been getting on Jesus's chiropractic table to get adjusted. And while the human spine has five sections, I Googled that, the church has three. There are three major elements of the church, three defining parts of the church, and it's what we're calling the gospel trifecta. It's the gospel message, the community that it creates, and the mission of God advancing. These three things, gospel message, gospel people, gospel advance. And we started this series by looking at Acts chapter two, where the gospel message is preached for the first time after Jesus is murdered, crucified, placed in a tomb, resurrected from the dead, appears before his disciples, and then ascends into heaven. Peter gets up and explains what's going on at Pentecost. I don't have time to explain all that, but he preaches the gospel, which is the central message of Christianity. Now, if you go through the Bible, this message, there's never a point in the Bible where you move past this message of the gospel. It's repeated over and over and over. In fact, if you were to read just through the first 10 chapters of the book of Acts, you'll see it repeated at least three or four times in these different settings. Everywhere that the apostles go, this is the message that they bring to the table. And here again, when we come to Acts chapter 10, verse 35 through 43, we see this gospel message, and I'm I'm just gonna read it for you. Here's what they're preaching. As for the word that he sent to Israel preaching the good news, so the gospel is not just good advice about how to get right with God, like these steps that you take in order to make yourself a better person. The gospel is good news that God came down to you. He says this word sent to Israel preaching the good news of peace through Jesus Christ. He is Lord of all, that's in parentheses, like by the way, he's Lord of all. You yourselves know what happened throughout all Judea, beginning from Galilee after the baptism that John proclaimed how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. 
He went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. And we are witnesses of all that he did both in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They put him to death by hanging him on a tree. That's Good Friday. But God raised him on the third day and made him to appear not to all the people, but to us who had been chosen by God as witnesses to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one appointed by God to be judge over the living and the dead. To him all the prophets bear witnesses that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. Now, in a nutshell, this gospel message that Peter brings to the table, and you just see repeated throughout the New Testament, is that Jesus, the God-man, who put on flesh and dwelt among us, went and died a sinner's death on a cross so that we who trust in him would be made right with God, that our sins would be forgiven and have peace with God the Father. And that is what we're celebrating today, that Jesus was dead and now is alive right now. Now the message of the gospel, this, this news about Jesus is the solution to our greatest problem that we face as a human race. It's relevant to all. There's not a single person on this globe that this does not speak to the greatest needs and longings of their heart. That sin made us enemies of God. It separated us. That, that guilt and shame and brokenness were not part of God's design for humanity, but when we rebelled against God, when we sinned, we, we now stepped into this life where we're like, God, you know, we don't need you. Like giving God the middle finger. I don't need you, God. I can handle this on my own. And with that came the brokenness of God's intended creation where guilt and shame plagues us, that sin controls us. And where there is sin, punishment must be given out. The wrath of God must be, God, God is a holy God that cannot tolerate sin. He can't just sweep it under the rug and say, you know what, no big deal. We'll just, we'll do a do-over. God can't do, he's holy, he's a holy, righteous God. Sin has to be dealt with if we are to commune, to be in relationship with God. And at the cross, Jesus pays the price for all of our sins. For your sins individually, but corporately, the whole human race was laid, all of, the, pay, or all of the, the payment, all of the debt was placed upon Jesus, why it was such an agonizing experience for Jesus to be on the cross. He pays the price, he's dead, yet on Sunday morning he's resurrected, and with him he brings new life for all who believe in him. And now, for those of us who put our faith in Jesus, who trusted him, who say, okay, yes, I realize that I'm a sinner. There's something, I don't just do sinful things, that there's something profoundly broken on the inside of me, that I am foundationally a sinner. Our relationship with God, if we've come to this realization and put our trust in Jesus, now we see that Jesus pays the price for that. He brings us into this new life with God. Our relationship with God is completely overhauled, so now we are no longer defined by our sins, no longer defined by our failures, our missteps, our character flaws, but we're defined by the righteousness of Jesus, which is what brings us into a deep and meaningful relationship with God the Father. 
So that's, that's the first part of gospel trifecta, right? The gospel message that, that was proclaimed, the forgiveness of sins for all who will believe. And now last week we saw how this gospel message doesn't just carry uh, vertical implications, right? Me and God are now uh, reconciled and we have this relationship, but it carries this vertical reality, carries horizontal implications, that as we're adopted into the family of God, that we can call him our father, we look around and we see we have brothers and sisters who share the same faith in Jesus as us. And, and what happens here is being brought into the father, not only are we devoted to our father, but devoted to our brothers and sisters, and this creates a kind of community that is very attractive. It's a joyful community, it's a generous community. It's a gracious and patient community, and guess what? It's even a buoyant community. That means when hardship and troubles and trials come and just want to push you down beneath the surface of the water, the hope of Jesus allows us to pop right back up to the surface. There's something powerful and attractive about a gospel community. Now, it's through this church, the gospel people, that God intends to carry out his mission, which is the third part of our gospel trifecta. So we have gospel message, gospel community, now gospel mission, gospel advance. And what we're gonna do today is fast forward through the first 10 chapters of the book of Acts. Now typically, I'm like looking at 10 verses, and it takes me 45 minutes. I don't know how I'm gonna do this 10 chapters, but we're gonna do it, I'm gonna keep it short, but we cannot get, we cannot grasp the reality of the mission of God in just like this little itty bitty passage. We have to see this progressive unfolding here as the mission of God advances. Now the question is what exactly is the mission of God? What am I talking about? Right, does God have like a mission statement plastered up in heaven somewhere? It's like everybody, so you go to his website and you see, okay, oh, well, this must be what God's about. No, he doesn't. But the mission of God has been communicated from Genesis chapter one all throughout Revelation chapter 21. It's the same thing, it never changes. God's mission statement is the same, but what he's trying to do, God wants to be known. That's it, in a nutshell. The mission of God is for, to, is, is he wants to make himself known to his creation. He wants his goodness to be known, he wants his beauty to be known, and he wants his truth to be known. And this drives everything that God does. The mission of God is driving everything that you see here in the scripture, it's driving, it's all about this. God wants to be known. That's why God in creation, he's like, I'm a glorious being, an eternal glorious being. I want people to know. I'm gonna create a world, uh, uh, create a people who can know me. So God creates. We see this in the temple, in the book of Exodus, or, or the tabernacle, which then segues into the, the temple, how God wants to be known, so he puts up a place on earth where it's like, this is where I'm gonna dwell. This is where you can come to meet me. Here's where you will learn about me to know about me. And then, of course, we have the prophets who've come throughout, sprinkled throughout the Old Testament, who are proclaiming the reality about who God is, calling people back to relationship with him. And, and in Hebrews chapter one, we're told that this, that long ago, in many times, and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers, right? There's this, this heritage of God speaking to his people by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, who is Jesus, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he also, he created the world. Okay, so Jesus was there with God when he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God. So everything that's glorious and beautiful and magnificent of God, the Father is magnificent, is seen here in Jesus. He's the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe 
by the word of his power. Unreal. After making purification for our sins, right after the cross, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. This Jesus was exalted after his, his life, death, and resurrection, seated at the right hand of God. Now, God is communicating. He's making himself known through the prophets, and now we see he's making himself known through Jesus, the exact imprint of his nature, God puts on flesh so that we can see what God is like in Jesus. Now, if you were here on Good Friday, you'll remember we kind of screwed that up. Like, we saw the glory of God in Jesus, and they're like, yeah, I think we should kill him. Right? It's like we couldn't, it's like our, our palate couldn't handle the intensity of the glory of Jesus and our sin. It's, it's literally where humanity was at its worst, literally that we would kill God. The only person who never did anything wrong, we'd say, yeah, he's guilty of this. He's, he's a thief. He needs to be crucified. See, those were, those were the voices that were rolling there on Good Friday. And while we see humanity at its worst on Good Friday, God is at his best. Jesus perfectly obeys the Father. He says, Father, if this is your plan for me, like, listen, I'm gonna be real with you, Father. I don't wanna do this. Like, this sounds like it's gonna be really intense. It's gonna be brutal. But if this is your will, Father, I will do it. Jesus was at his best. When it was, like, high stakes, all in on the table, Jesus is at his best. And all of this plan that God had to make himself known is gonna come to a head here on Resurrection Sunday. See, God's plan to reconcile us to himself involved the cross. Like we couldn't have relationship, this meaningful relationship, this access to God that Jesus offers us if there were no cross. It had to be this way. And it's through the cross that Jesus offers us, Peter talks about this here, we already hit it, he offers us peace through Jesus Christ. This reconciliation with God. Now, when we're restored, we have this right relationship with God. The resurrection changes everything. So now, if you see Jesus, see, what sin made us do, the, the fundamental thing that sin made us do was to run away from God. It's like, I want to do my own thing. I want to run away. I want to be the captain of my own ship. But the gospel of the resurrection changes that. So when you see the glory of God in Jesus and what he did on the cross, you want to run to him. You want to go toward him, not run away. You want to go in. And if you've tasted and you've seen God's grace, you've seen the beauty and the truth and the love of Jesus, it completely redefines you. It changes you to your core. You literally become a new creation. That's what Paul talks about in 2 Corinthians. The old is gone, the new has come. You're a new creation in Christ. And when you've experienced that, you cannot help but to tell other people about it. You can't help but tell them. Now Peter says in verse 42 here that, that the apostles, right, those who saw Jesus firsthand after the resurrection, they were commanded to witness and proclaim about the gospel. But listen, if you see a dead man come alive, you don't have to be told to tell people about it. You know what I'm saying? Like, you're at Granny's funeral, and she's gonna sit up out of the casket. You're gonna tell people about that. See, this happens naturally. 
what just blows you away, you're gonna talk about. What, what, what you love, what invigorates you, that's gonna be what, this is how you know, like if you're at a CrossFit gym, CrossFitters love to talk about CrossFit. They love it, like look how swole I am, I can do this so fast, I can do it faster, I'm gonna talk about it all day long. In my gym, we've got this thing up on the wall that says the first rule, it's like a Fight Club logo, you know, from the movie. First rule of, you know, the, the saying goes, the first rule of Fight Club, don't talk about Fight Club. The first rule of CrossFit, always talk about CrossFit. There's some truth to that. It's because you naturally talk about what invigorates you. You go down to the best restaurant in the Quad Cities, you're gonna broadcast that on Facebook, right? You go to the Super Bowl and your team wins, you're gonna, broad, you're, just, you're gonna talk about what you love, what captivates you, what invigorates you, and listen, there's nothing more invigorating, nothing more joyful and life-giving than the grace of Jesus. Leslie Newbegin, who was a missionary who, uh, way, you know, several years ago, he's now passed, but he talks about mission the church's mission, the mission of God, being a nuclear fallout of joy. It's like in Christ, the gospel drops this nuclear bomb of joy, and then the fallout is the people just gotta talk about it. It just, it just keeps going, it keeps going and going and reaching. And we see this in the early church. They, they receive the gospel, they see what Jesus does, and they get after it, they're telling everybody. In fact, you go to Acts chapter two, you see just in one day, 3,000 people come to faith in Jesus. You go to Acts chapter five, 5,000 people come to faith in Jesus. You wanna know why? Because they're talking about it. They're going to the temples, they're going to the markets, they're going in their neighborhoods, and they're telling people about the life-changing reality that Jesus Christ, who was once dead, is now alive. And he offers forgiveness of sins. And so here we see in the early church, the mission of God is rapidly advancing. God is being made known, and lots of people are being saved. Now what's interesting here is in Acts chapter five, we see, now let me back up. So the disciples, we're told, are ordinary, uneducated men. Like there's nothing fancy about them. They're just kind of normal dudes, dudes. And they're the first ones to receive the gospel. Like think blue collar, factory, like if they weren't following Jesus, they'd be fishing, they'd be factory workers. They're the first ones to receive the word of God, to receive the gospel message. And then they start sharing it with their neighbors, their friends, other Jewish people, and we start to see them coming to faith. But not only do we start to see these devout Jewish people who would have been going to the temples and the synagogues to worship God and offer sacrifices, we start to see some of the religious leaders come to faith in Jesus. They say, okay, I'm gonna have to get a new career here. Like, because all the time before this, they were in the synagogues, they were preaching, they were teaching the Jewish way. Now Jesus has stepped in and completely changed their life. The gospel is reaching unlikely people. And then the church, you know, it's going really well for a while, like really well. I mean, if you can get like 8,000 new church members in a matter of weeks, I'd say you're doing something right. But then they start to hit these road bumps. The disciples start getting persecuted. They, they get arrested, Peter and John. They're told to shut up, right? The Jewish leaders are, are literally upset with them and say, hey, you gotta close your can, man. Stop talking about Jesus. And then in Acts chapter four, verse 20, they say, we cannot speak of Jesus. 
Like, are we gonna obey man or are we gonna obey God? See, the, the, the power, the, the joy, uh, the nuclear fallout of joy just keeps going. Nothing can stop it. And so they pray to the Holy Spirit. They're refilled with boldness and they go out and keep doing what they were doing. And as they get persecuted and as they're, they're suffering, they are rejoicing. This is weird. Christians are weird. They are rejoicing in the fact that they're suffering because they get to share in the glory and the sufferings of Jesus. And they continue to redevote themselves to God. So, so you would think that as, as opposition comes, you would maybe like loosen your grip on how how excited you are about this gospel business, but it only tightens their grip. They only get more and more invigorated to continue to be devoted to God, to the church, to the mission. And then in chapter five, we start to see multitudes. So it's at the point now the church is growing so rapidly, they can't even count people. The multitudes are coming to faith. Now, as the Jewish leaders see this, they get jealous because their church ain't growing. Like they're losing people. The Jews are converting to Christianity and they want to arrest these Christians. Jew, uh, they want to, John and Peter and, and, and literally they're so upset that they want to kill him. They're devising plans on how we can put an end to this Jesus business once and for all. See, they thought that the cross was gonna put an end to it. That, that's what they were hoping. Just to cut the knees right out from Jesus and his followers and stop them from doing what they were doing but it only adds to their, their zeal. Now, one of the Pharisees says to these Jewish leaders, because they're kind of losing their mind, it's like in those moments, like things are going so crazy that you just can't think straight, and the Pharisees, they can't think straight, and they're like, we gotta kill them, and one Pharisee steps back from him and is like, listen, dudes, if this Jesus stuff isn't from God, it'll eventually fizzle out. Like Christianity will just kind of fade away in the backdrop, it'll be a little blip on the radar, and and then nobody will ever think twice again. But he says, but if this is of God, then it can't be stopped. And if you try to stop it, you might find yourselves opposing God. See, God's mission will not be stopped. And guess what? This whole Christianity thing doesn't blow over. We're here 2,000 years later singing praises of Jesus, getting all fired up about it. Christianity kept blowing up and it started multiplying and multiplying and growing and expanding. And eventually the leaders get fed up and they, they throw that you know, thoughtful gesture away and say, we gotta kill somebody. And so we see Stephen in chapter six and seven, who's a disciple of Jesus, literally be killed because he's proclaiming the gospel. He becomes the first Christian martyr. And you wanna talk about a nuclear fallout of joy? Like Stephen was glad to give up his life for Jesus. And in the background, we, we were introduced to this guy named Saul, okay? Saul is egging them on. He's holding cloaks. He approves of the murder. He later on goes on, and he starts ravaging the church. He's trying to go to this place called Damascus, which is like, it's kind of like the Quad Cities in that it's this hub where everything has to pass through it. So every little Amazon order anybody in the world gets is probably coming through the Quad Cities at some point. Damascus was this place, and Saul was like, hey, I'm gonna stop Christianity from spreading by going to the city and putting an end, throwing people in jail, and he's ravaging the church. And what happens here is that Christians start to get a little afraid. They, they realize that the pressure is on and they flee from Jerusalem and they go back to their hometowns where they came from and when they go home to their hometowns, they bring the gospel with them. 
So people who are not in Jerusalem suddenly become aware of this reality about there's this man named Jesus of Nazareth who died on a cross, was resurrected, and he wants to give me a new life, bring me into a relationship with God, and more and more people are coming to faith. Now, unlike these fake messiahs who have come up before, because part of the, the Pharisee thing saying, hey, if this isn't of God, it's gonna phase out. It's like, this has happened before. There have been other people who have stepped up and said, hey, I'm the Messiah. And they've uh, accumulated a band of, of followers and say, watch, I'm gonna do all this stuff that God promised. And, and eventually they die, and so does their mission. Like, they die, and, and their relevancy just whoosh, nosedives, goes off of it. But Jesus isn't like these fake messiahs. See, his death, his resurrection, the persecution of his church unleashes a wildfire of revival. The gospel rapidly spreads geographically beyond Jerusalem, into Judea, into Samaria, and, and then beyond into the ends of the earth. And as it does so, it reaches some of the most unlikely people who will become Jesus followers, Christians. And they'll start leading churches out of their own homes, in their neighborhoods, starting missional communities. And a gospel movement breaks out. Now, in the midst of this persecution, one of the disciples is named Philip. He goes to Samaria. Now, we, we have to do a little bit of cultural work here because the Jewish people and Samaritans, they were, like, were kind of like distant cousins, but they hated each other. Like, the Jews were like Bettendorfians who would look down their nose at everybody else in the Quad Cities and be like... You peasants, you know what I'm saying? That's what the Jews were like to Samaritans. The Samaritans were half-breeds. They didn't really count. They were like, you know, half-people. They, they, they were kind of cousins, but we, we, dis, we disclaimed that part of the family. And so as Philip goes to the Samaritans, he preaches the gospel, and a bunch of people hear this good news about Jesus, and they believe in Jesus, and they're baptized, and then John and Peter come up to see what's going on, because they're like, how is it these half-breed Samaritans are here, how is it that this good news is for them too? I thought the good news was just for the Jews. Well, they go, they pray for them, the Holy Spirit falls on them, just like Pentecost happened. They receive the power from the Holy Spirit, and they're like, oh my goodness, God is doing something here, even with the Samaritans. And now one guy who's in their company in Samaria is named Simon the Magician. So not only do we see the gospel reaching like half-breeds, people who aren't really, they're not quite worthy of God, but then there's this guy inside of here who's a, a magician, which means he's, he's a spiritual but not religious guy. So he has some sort of interaction with the power. I mean, there's a, I, I don't want to call her out, but there's like a rock shop, like tarot card reading uh, lady down the street from where I live, um, it, it'd be kind of like her. She, she's got this spiritual vibe about her, but, but not necessarily connected to a religion. Like this is Simon. He's this spiritual but not religious kind of guy. And when he like meets Jesus and sees the power of the Spirit coming down on these people, he realizes that what these Christians have is a greater, purer, more powerful power. He goes, hey, I want to get in on that. So we have this spiritual guy say, Actually, this Jesus is what I've been looking for the whole time. Now then we see Philip. After he goes to Samaria, he comes down and he meets um, this Ethiopian eunuch. And we're told that he's basically the African Secretary of State. So this is a very powerful person who is coming from Jerusalem and Philip happens to cross paths with him and they're reading the prophet Isaiah about the stuff about this lamb who would be slain. Crushed for rebellion, right? And, and, and Philip asked him, do you know what you're reading about? And he's like, nope. 
And Philip says, well, let me tell you about Jesus. This is who this is about. And so he, he tells him about Jesus. And so we see this powerful person reading the prophet Isaiah, and, and, and Philip says, guys, hey, this is, this is about Jesus here. And, and he goes, hey, what's to stop me from being baptized? I'm in. This, if this is about Jesus, I'm gonna follow him. And so he takes this gospel back with him to Egypt and Africa. Now, this is really important here. Because here we see the gospel going to Africa before it goes to the West. See, one of the misconceptions about Christianity is that it's a white man's religion. I know most of us have pretty light pigment here. I'm one of them. But it's not a white man's religion. This is a Middle Eastern, this is where it started here. In Jerusalem, it's spilling out and it goes into Africa before it even reaches Rome and Italy and the West. And so we see a rapid expanse geographically, going from Jerusalem down south, and then Philip, we're told, is, he, this is what it literally says, scripture says this, he's carried away by God, and then he finds himself in a new city. Now, I'm not exactly sure what this means, but when I read this, I'm thinking Philip was straight up teleported. Like God picked him up, whoosh, and dropped him in a new city. I don't know for sure, but that would be my, my projection here. And, and Philip, as he's going to this new city, he's preaching the gospel in these small towns. Now, I'm a small town boy. I had 54 people in my graduating class. This excites me, because Jesus loves small towns. Right, all, all, you know, it's easy to think of the Quad Cities as just like you know, the, the four or five main cities, depending on how you look at it. I don't count Bentdorf technically, right? Because I think the original four are you know, East Moline, Moline, Rock Island, and, and Davenport. Don't quote me on that, but I'm pretty sure I've read some books about that. But all of these outlying towns, Orion, Eldridge, Alito, Viola, Jesus cares about these places. He has people in those places. It's, it's what, what's being communicated to us here is that the gospel is for unnoticed people in obscure places, just like the Quad Cities. The Quad Cities, right, the flyover, flyover zone. Right? Who, who knows, the Quad Cities, you mean the Twin Cities? Nope, not the Twin Cities, I mean the Quad Cities. Jesus cares about places like this. And we see the gospel reaching far and wide. So we've got the religious leaders, devout Jews who are coming. We've got the Samaritans. You see a, a spiritual but not religious guy come to faith. You see a European eunuch who's, or an Ethiopian eunuch who's powerful, has a high power of position in his home country. And now we meet maybe the most unlikely person to be converted. We're introduced to Saul, who is enemy number one. He was the guy who was responsible for the murder of Stephen and, and the persecution of the church, and he's in Damascus trying to kink the hose like I was telling you about, but Jesus has other plans for him as he's on his way to Damascus. Jesus meets, the, the resurrected Jesus meets him, knocks him off his horse, says, hey, why are you persecuting me? He's like, who are you? And Jesus is like, it's me, I'm the Lord. And he's like, okay, I'm gonna change my life. And, and what happens when Jesus converts Paul, he goes from being enemy number one to perhaps the greatest asset of the church aside from Jesus and the Holy Spirit. When, when Saul, who is renamed Paul because his conversion is so powerful, literally becomes a new person, he's renamed and he goes on to write 28% of the New Testament. Like, Next Sunday, we're gonna get together, 
Again, and can, you know, the party of resurrection continues, but we're gonna huddle around the words of the Apostle Paul in the book of Ephesians, and, and he's really gonna explore a lot of the implications of the gospel on like a personal communal level. And I'd really love for you to come back for that because I think it's liter- it has a pow- potential to be so life-changing. Bringing the gospel down from the head down into the heart. But, but Paul writes 28% of the New Testament, and he becomes the leading missionary of the New Testament. Now, so far, what we've seen in, in this progressing, un- progressive unfolding of the mission of God is more and more people are coming to know who God is through Jesus. So far, these new Christians have had some connection in some way, shape, or form, even loose connection to Judaism and to Israel, either by nationality or heritage or even Jewish proselytes and converts who have come to know God through some other means. What we're seeing here is that people, so it's not just the Jews, but it's the people on the fringes who are coming to know who Jesus is. Receiving the gospel, receiving the Holy Spirit. But here in Acts chapter 10, which is really where we're trying to land here, and and we're landing, we see the gospel hit a new market. The gospel, once again, broadens its reach. And we're introduced to this, this Gentile named Cornelius. Now, Cornelius is a centurion of the Italian cohort, which means he's a soldier. He's a guy that follows orders. He's got some sort of power in in the Roman Empire. He's got men underneath of him who he's responsible for. But we're told that this centurion feared God. He and his family knew who God was, and he was devoted to God in some way. As far as his interaction with the Jews, he, he came to know this God and an angel tells Cornelius to go find this guy named Peter who just had this really crazy dream. And in this dream, Peter is told, God, God speaks to him and he lays out all of the animals of creation. Now, Jewish people could only eat certain kinds of animals. There were animals that were called clean, which were okay to eat, and some that were considered unclean, which were not okay to eat. So if you were to eat something that was unclean, you yourself became unclean that there was something defective in you and because of your uncleanness, you couldn't be with God. Going back to this whole, a holy God cannot tolerate sin thing. Well, God lays all of this food, these animals before him, and he says, listen, Peter, rise and eat. All is clean. It's like all that stuff that I said before, all of that ceremonial law, all of, the, all of those extra laws about what you can and cannot do, eating goes. God said, hey, it, it's fine. Jesus fulfilled all of that. He says, rise and eat, kill and eat. And Peter's like, listen, I've, I've never done that. I, I've kept the Jewish customs. I, I've, I've, I've been a good Jewish person. I can never do that. But God said, listen, do not call what I've made clean, unclean. Now, Peter's like, what is this dream about? He's thinking it's just about food. But then he's got this dude named Cornelius, who's a Gentile, who shows up on his doorstep. And, and what's actually said here, if we had time to actually go through it, Peter says to Cornelius, he's like, dude, why are you on my doorstep? You know that I, a Jew, cannot be with you, a Gentile person. Your presence will ruin me. And then there's this light bulb that goes off where Peter realizes, hey, that dream that I had about all food being made clean wasn't just about food. It was about people. See, the Gentile people were considered unclean because of their practices, the way that they didn't uphold the Jewish traditions. And now he sees that God has this plan, not just to reach the Jewish people and those who are on the fringes, but to go beyond that to even the Jewish, the people who are, who are far beyond God's reach. 
See, this dream was ultimately about the Gentiles and what in this moment is being communicated to us about the gospel is that there's not a single person on the face of this earth that the gospel is not for. The gospel is for Jews and Samaritans and Gentiles. Literally, that's every category of person. It's for God-fearers and God-haters like Paul, for seekers like the, the Simon the Magician. It's for the significant people, people of power, like the, the, the eunuch, like the centurion. It's for the people who are unnoticed in those small towns. The gospel is for everybody, which means the gospel is for you. Peter has this realization here in verse 34. He says, Peter opened his mouth and said, truly I understand that God shows no partiality. Now, literally everything about us as humans, we have this tendency to show partiality. That's why there's classism. That's why there's racism. That's why there's national pride, which pushes, like we have this tendency to show preference to the people who are like us. But God, Peter says, God doesn't have any preference. He has no partiality. But in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right and acceptable to him, he keeps going on. In verse 44, he says, while Peter was still saying these things, he was preaching the gospel to these people, like, hey, this is what Jesus did, and the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word, and the believers from among the circumcised, the Gentile, or excuse me, the Jewish people who had come with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles. See, there's no such thing as first-rate Christians and second-rate or third-rate Christians. It's everybody. If you're a Christian, you've received everything that Jesus has for you. Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles for they were hearing them speaking in tongues and extolling God and then Peter declared, can anybody withhold water for baptizing these people who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Then they asked him to remain here for some days. So here we see anybody who believes the gospel is brought into the family of God placed in a family, cleansed of your sins, and given new life through the power of the Holy Spirit. So right now, no matter who you are, no matter what you've done, no matter where you're coming from, the gospel is for you. I think it's Augustine who said it. Our hearts are restless until they rest in thee, O Lord. So you have this inner pull in your heart. You have this inner longing that can only be satisfied by Jesus. Now, you can hide that. You can mask it. You can suppress it. Or you can hear that and try to satisfy that in different places. But Jesus is the only one who can satisfy the inner longing that you have. So whether you're a devout and spiritual person, you're a spiritual hooligan, or if you're broken, or if you're struggling, or if you just say, hey, I'm I'm doing all right, the gospel is for you. If you're far away from God, the gospel is for you. If you're searching for faith, the gospel of Jesus is for you, and Jesus stands right now ready to receive you. His arms are wide open toward you. He's like, 
the, the cross, where his arms were stretched. It's like this is his constant posture towards sinners. There's never a moment where Jesus will turn his back on you. You can come to him. There's no condemnation. He's already been condemned for you. And when you find Jesus, when you run into his arms, you find that you are met right where you're at. The real you, with all your ugliness. We're saying about, I don't, I don't have to hide my weaknesses, my faults. You already know them. Jesus stands ready to meet sinners like you and me. Now, when I, when I use this, I mean, I've been saying Jesus stands, but, I, but you gotta know that Jesus is way more active than he is passive. So Jesus doesn't stand on the corner and say, hey, you know, whenever you want, you know, I'm here if you wanna give me a hug. The posture of Jesus is an active posture. He is pursuing. There's this old poem called The Hound of Heaven that is his relentless and steadfast love that keeps chasing you down. And so if you're not yet a Christian, Jesus has you in his crosshairs. Jesus is looking after you. You're not overlooked. Jesus knows exactly where you're at, what you're struggling with. You're in his crosshairs, and he's on a rescue mission not to hurt you, but to save you, to bring you into a relationship with your heavenly father, to give you a new identity, to remake who you are in the most glorious way, to give you a new sense of purpose and a deep sense of joy. And you can push away it, look, if you're in Jesus' crosshairs, you can push away as long as you want, but Jesus is gonna win that arm, arm wrestle. He's gonna, he's gonna catch you. He's gonna catch up with you, and so no matter what you do, it's impossible for you to screw up this relentless pursuit of Jesus. It's impossible. And we see that, that even Jesus' killers are saved. That the apostle Paul, enemy number one of the church, is saved and made a, a valuable asset of the church. Now the primary, primary way that Jesus pursues people is through the church, people who are captivated by Jesus. If you've been brought into God's family, if you've tasted and seen, you've been brought into the family business. See, Jesus, God is about making himself known, and guess what, your part in the family is to make your father known, to make Jesus known, your older brother. If you're a Christian, you are a missionary. See, the, the church has made the mistake of being the frozen chosen, right? Hey, we just, we're just gonna do our thing here on Sunday mornings if people wanna come check it out, that's cool. The church is an active, engaging force with the world. They're heralds of the gospel sent to proclaim the good news of Jesus and to do things in thought, word, and deed to renew the Quad Cities. Through your work, the gym, your neighborhood, wherever you find yourself, you're not there by accident, but a missionary of Jesus there to make him known. You don't have to be ordained. You don't have to have it all together. All you need is your testimony that Jesus has reached down and saved a sinner like you. And like that, you're a missionary. Now what started all of this like, what, what was the match that lit the fire to this widespread, right, L literally the most unlikely people coming to know who Jesus is? What started this whole thing? The resurrection of Jesus. See, unlike those wannabes who came before and said, hey, we're messiahs, we're gonna, we're gonna set up God's kingdom here, they, they were killed and they were done. Jesus was killed and he's like, I'm not done. I'm gonna get up from the grave. And then I'm gonna go up to heaven and I'm gonna fill my followers with the Holy Spirit and they're gonna keep chipping away at the work that I started. Jesus flexed on sin, death, and the grave. 
The tomb was left empty. He right now is very much alive and the mission of God is unstoppable because the grave couldn't stop Jesus. As long as Jesus lives, the gospel will advance. That's unreal, guys. As long as Jesus, he's not going anywhere. As long as Jesus lives, the mission of God advances. And if it's not gonna be here, it's gonna be somewhere else, right? You wanna see where the mission of God's advancing? Go to China, go to India, go to Brazil, South America. The mission of God, widespread revival happening. Because God uses opposition to fuel gospel renewal. You try to snuff God out, he can't be snuffed out. You try to stop the mission, it can't be stopped. Now, I say that, I say the mission of God can't be stopped, but here's the deal. We can stunt the mission of God. As Christians, we can stunt, we can stall out the mission of God because the mission of God will stall in places where the Christians neglect the mission of God. It's the, pl- the, pl- the mission of God is stalled out where Christians are apathetic. They lack zeal, are, are, are prayerless. They, they would rather be quiet and keep this Jesus business under wraps than tell somebody, like to have a life-changing conversation with somebody and tell them what Jesus has done for them. And so that what happens is when, when Christians become numb, when Christians, our, our, our lips get zipped, What this means is that we've lost the significance. We've lost the power of the cross and the resurrection. We now have this small gospel. It's like this this mentality that like, the gospel can be for me, but it's probably not for other people. So we just keep our mouths shut. But the gospel is for all people. See, God is wanting to make himself known throughout the world. And if this is true of us, if we become apathetic towards mission, we need to be recaptivated by Jesus. We need the gospel to wash over us anew and let the power of the resurrection, the power that raised Christ from the dead, resurrect your love and devotion to him. Just like in Revelation, there's a church that has got lukewarm, like they've gotten cold, they've, they've lost their first love. This is where we need to be. If, if we've become apathetic toward the mission of God, if we're, if we're lackadaisical with talking about Jesus, we have to come back to the gospel and realize that it's not you who lives, but it's Christ in you. The Holy Spirit now driving you and it's what compels us to live this distinct life, right, in community and on mission. And if this is the case, if, if you have received the gospel and the power of the Holy Spirit is upon you to go and make Jesus known to wherever you go, that means go get him. Go tell him. Go tell him. So the next place, see, this, this is what I'm praying for. We've been praying for this for like two or three, a well, long time. My prayer is that the next place where we see this wildfire of revival break out is right here in the Quad Cities. And right now, I don't know, maybe there's 100 people around here right now. It's like, well, how can, how can 100 people, how can 100 people like really bust out any kind of revival? How can, how can God use 100 people in a city of 120,000 or what are, what are we, like 200, 400,000? How can God do that? Well, guess what? The whole movement of Christianity began with 120 disciples. 
and they literally turned the world upside down. Oh, that God would do that again. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your grace to us that you did not leave us to sit beneath the weight of our sin, to have lives that would literally be more futile than, well, I don't know, more, the most futile thing in the world. You've given us a hope, you've given us a new life, you've, you've changed everything about us because of the resurrection, and I pray that once again, Father, that you would do that work, that, that if there are people in this room this morning that have just come to see your glory and your grace, maybe for the first time, that you would change their hearts, to give them the faith to believe and to trust in you, that you would show your power in their life and show how you can break the chains of sin and death, and it's through this resurrection, God. We, we thank you that the grave could not hold you back. You have the keys to death. You have trampled out sin. We love you, Jesus. We praise you, and let us never grow weary of sharing this gospel with others. And we pray this in your beautiful name. Amen. We're gonna partake in the Lord's Supper on the night in which Jesus was betrayed. He took bread and broke it, said, this is my body broken for you. And he took a cup and said, this is the cup of the new covenant of my blood that shed out for the forgiveness of sins. And now he invites all of those who call themselves disciples of Jesus, people who practice the way of Jesus, to come and receive on a regular basis, to be reminded of his, his sacrifice, the price that he paid for our sins, but also to see that it's through this meal, it's a means of grace where we are spiritually strengthened, where the Spirit feeds us and nourishes us so that we can go make Jesus made known to the Quad Cities and far beyond. So the Lord's table will be open this morning for baptized and repentant believers. If you do not consider yourself a baptized and repentant believer, we ask that you would refrain from taking the Lord's Supper, but instead consider what this meal means, the sacrifice that Jesus had so that you could be brought back into relationship with your Father. The men who are serving, will you please come forward? Some peace when fears are.
Stop. 